Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark, otherwise known as Tony Stark <laughs> to some on the podcast. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. We have a little bit to address here from last time. Uh, Corey was talking about some writings that he came across, some old documents, and we kind of left a little teaser there. So, uh, Corey, what do you got about these Ethiopian manuscripts that you came across? Yeah, this is cool. This uh, is something I discovered, and I can't say discovered, I, I found online in route looking up other things. And I was um, searching for some scriptures that may have been included in the Bible years ago and then aren't in the current canon of scripture because sometimes you find, oh, examples and testimonies and things that corroborate with other scripture. And what I what I came across was a document called the Kebra Nagast. And it's something that for people in Ethiopia who are Christians have held this as a historically reliable work inspired of God. And it's basically a collection of scripture that follows the Bible and quotes the Bible in many areas. And it's at least 700 years old. Um, and it wasn't translated into English until the early 1900s, at least completely. Uh, in the 1800s, some people began to be aware of it. But this document called the Kebra Nagas has something really interesting in it. And, and this is it. It, it talks a lot about Zion, and it talks about Enoch. Um, and the the language it uses matches very closely what we find in the inspired version of the Bible, Genesis 9, where it talks about the everlasting covenant. And the, what's interesting about this is if you read the inspired version in Genesis 9, and the popular verses are like 17 through 23, you hear about God establishing a covenant with Enoch. And you hear about this connection with the rainbow and this idea that God would never flood the earth. But only in the inspired version, you get some language that says, and when God sees this bow in the cloud, he'll remember this everlasting covenant that he made with Enoch. And in the inspired version only, and not in the King James or other versions, it says, when men should keep my commandments, Zion would again come to the earth, the city of Enoch, which I've caught to myself. And it includes this language, and I know for people who have kind of grown up in the church, you've, you've heard this and you know this, and it says, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn will come down out of heaven and possess the earth and have place till the end come. And this is the everlasting covenant I made with thy father Enoch. I, I skipped over a little bit in there, but that's the gist of it, and, and we hold on to this as this promise of Zion. So that's the language of the inspired version, Genesis 9, and that's something that Joseph Smith has been, I'm sure, uh, you know, soundly criticized by, roundly criticized, whatever the word is, by uh, critics for including something that historically there's no proof of that. Okay, that just seemed to be to most people probably something Joseph Smith made up. Well, <clears throat> what's interesting is this is this Ethiopian document that was held in Ethiopia for 700 years. And it's not that it's only 700 years old. It, the um, historians who've looked at this say, hey, it includes works from you know the first couple centuries AD. It's, it's probably 16, 17, 1800 years old. It was in other kind of the, 
the foreign language, the Coptic and the Aramaic and what originally, and then it was translated into Ethiopian, and then it comes here. Well, let me read a little bit of this document and then just kind of say something about maybe Ethiopia, African people in general in terms of their connection with this. So in the inspired version, it says, I will establish my covenant with you, which I made unto Enoch. The Kebra Nagast, this Ethiopian document, document says in its chapter 10, I will swear by myself and by Zion, <clears throat> which is the tabernacle of my covenant. So it, it's connecting God's covenant and his tabernacle in Zion. And he says, which I created for a mercy seat for the salvation of men. And in the latter days, I will make it come down to thy seed. Now, this is, this is from this Ethiopian document saying, hey, I, Zion, this tabernacle of my covenant, in the latter days will come down to thy seed. And he says, the tabernacle of my covenant shall be with them forever. And this tabernacle of his covenant is referred to in this Ethiopian document as Zion. In the inspired version, it says, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn shall come down out of heaven, possess the earth, and have place until the end come. The Cabernet says, the tabernacle of my covenant shall be with them forever. And then it has some similar language, which is included in the King James and the inspired and this Ethiopian document. And it says, when a cloud has appeared in the sky so that um, they may not fear, may not imagine that a flood is coming again, I will make to come down from my habitation of Zion the bow of my covenant. And that is to say the rainbow, which is the tabernacle of my law. What's interesting about that is this rainbow and the word Zion only appear in the inspired version. They, there's no word or mention of Zion or Enoch City in the King James. It was only in the inspired version, but now we've got this Ethiopian document that had the same thing. I'm going to say right now, Mike, I have a feeling that the Kebra Nagast Ethiopian document was not in the Palmyra Library in the 1800s. All right. Now, what do you think about that? I'd, I <clears throat> probably doubt that very yeah, much. Yeah, probably. Well, <clears throat> what's it, it continues because so this document, 700 years old from Ethiopia, says, I will remember my tabernacle of my covenant. I will set the rainbow in the sky, of course, and I will put away mine anger and send my compassion, and I will not forget my word. And he says, though heaven and earth will pass away, my word shall not pass away. And so the inspired version says, this is my everlasting covenant, you know, my, my promise, which I have made with thy father Enoch. So both documents are saying, hey, I'm making this promise that will not pass away. Um, the Ethiopian document again says the Lord will dwell on Mount Zion and Zion shall appear unto all prepared. Um, he said the dead shall be raised and those who are in the graves shall live. And so again, what do we think of Zion? It says, Hey, the, the people who live before are going to come down out of heaven. This is God's abode and we're going to dwell together. And, and so this document in, in two different places from Ethiopia, uh, it's chapter 10 and it's chapter 114, all are these descriptions of Zion. And, and in chapter 114, it concludes and says this, and Enoch and Elias shall come being alive so that they may testify and Moses and Aaron from the dead shall live with everyone. Again, it's, it's this description of people who've come back, who are, who are the greats, the patriarchs, even mentioning Enoch by name. So, so what does this Kebred Nagast have that the King James didn't have? Um, it mentions Zion, the everlasting covenant. It mentions it coming down in the latter days. It says, hey, this is an everlasting com covenant. Though heaven and earth have passed away, his word doesn't. 
it says Enoch comes back and the dead who are, you know, obviously the good people who died will all dwell together in this place. I mean, where do we, where else do we read that other than in the inspired version? Right. Uh, what did that say about the mercy seat? <clears throat> well, it's interesting because read that again. That was interesting. Yeah. Me, so it's different. Well, it, without getting into the rest of the document and I'll tell everyone, you can just, uh, you can ser- search this and find it online. Kebra, K-E-B-R-A, Nagast, N-A-G-A-S-T. And Mike, maybe you can include a couple links. I'll give you in the show notes. But there's a lot more than what I've read here. And it, it mentions this mercy seat often throughout its writings. Um, this document isn't that long. I mean, if you print it out on maybe it's 30 or so pages, something like on that order. Don't quote me on that. But it mentions the word Zion over 200 times in here, and it connects Zion with the mercy seat. Now, in the ancient scripture, like the um, Old Testament, you know, the mercy seat was connected with the place in the Holy of Holies where the priest who once a year offered the sacrifice of the blood, the animal that was carried in on Yom Kippur this day where they, they once a year made this atonement for the, the whole nation of Israel for their sin, the priest would carry the blood of the animal captured in and he would take it in this special vessel and he would carry it into the place where only he could go and he could only go there once a year and that was the Holy of Holies. And there was a veil and no one else could see in there. Only the priest could go in there offering the blood and he would sprinkle it on this golden altar that was commanded by God to be built and that was called the mercy seat. Now, this document talks about the mercy seat and it connects it many times with this idea that Zion also represents this mercy seat. And it says this was created from the beginning of time. But so that is, as a preface, it's, I'll, I'll read this again. <clears throat> um, says, I swear by myself and by Zion, the tabernacle of my covenant, which I've created for a mercy seat and for, for the salvation of men. And in the latter days, I will make it come down to thy seed. Now, part of that could be a reference for Jesus Christ himself, too, in, in this. But it's connecting this Zion and the mercy seat and God's promise all together, you know, through, through this covenant with Jesus Christ. That was a, a concept up until I've heard this that's only been talked about in the, in the Restoration or in the church in the latter days, this Zion and Enoch City and, you know, all of those writings that were restored through Revelation, included in the Doctrine and Covenants and the Bible. Um, this is, I don't know if people, <laughs> this is huge. To me That's it huge. Is. I mean, there's no, not that it, <clears throat> I don't know, like we said, it's it's not that um, I need that for, uh, it's just always good for for the Lord to pile on. And, and you see these things that just hopefully increases our faith and, and we realize that nothing's by chance and this is all uh, planned out and ordered and, in part of God's plan. Amazing. I mean, that's amazing. How many, how many times have, you know, people use that as an argument of Joseph making things up and adding to the word of God. And here's another culture around the world. That's got these writings that apparently got, and you know what else Corey shows that God doesn't just work, that God works with all peoples in all areas. And just because we don't know about it doesn't mean that we are the only ones or we have the only truth 
he has been working with all of his people because he loves all of mankind the same. That's such a great point because, you know, we've put our arms around this idea of Zion coming back. Like, Hey, it was, it was only something we knew about because we were in the restored church. And it was even more weird is that we kind of thought it was for us, you know, because of us. And it's like, no, this promise of Zion has been for his people wherever they are in the world eventually. And, and that, brings up this, why would it have been in Ethiopia? Why is this something that was hidden there? Um, there's more and more evidence now. Uh, people are understanding anyhow what happened when Israel was scattered. The people who were scattered in, uh, I'm sorry, Nephi's day were were part of this, but they weren't the only ones. Branches broken off, you know, the people that came to America were Joseph's tribes, but other tribes, 10 of the 12 were all scattered. And then later the Jews themselves were scattered throughout the world after Jesus' death. Well, so there's a lot of evidence suggesting that many cultures of Africa were descendants of the lost tribes. And while it's, you know, not the picture people have in their, their mind, it's like, you know, people with dark skin were just as much part of the covenant as people with light skin, for instance. And and that's some that's this bigger picture that God's had. So these Ethiopians, as well as people now that are documented in Nigeria and, and other places, certain tribes, um, they number millions of people, Mike, today. And what's interesting is that many of these tribes yet today hold on to traditions and customs that they can parallel with um, this only things you would have found from Israelites, for instance, laws of circumcision, uh, uh, keeping the Sabbath holy, for instance, or or things that women and, and men did in their relationships with each other, or e- even um, oh other aspects of just uh, things that were just the Mosaic culture, even even belief in animal sacrifice. Where do you get that unless it's from from Israel? Well. One step further, now they're even finding DNA testing, and I won't get into that on this podcast at all, but um, there's a lot of DNA testing coming out where they're testing these tribes and they're finding out they have the same markers. In fact, one, uh, the Ibu tribe in um, Nigeria, they're finding the same chromosome markers on the men in these tribes that were the same chromosome markers that were on the tribe of Levi, who were the, the priests in the temple. And, and this is interesting, too, in that they've been able to establish from like father to son in these, the Orthodox Jews who are descendants of these, they, they call them the Kohen, and, and that's even a common name today. You, know, you might hear the name Khan or Kohn or Kohen. They're all derivatives of the ancient Jewish of the Levites, the, the Kohenim, who are the... Um, the Levitical priesthood. Well, they've traced a DNA marker that follows their physical descendants. And so even in Nigeria and places, they're finding this. Well, the last thing I'll say about this is one of the ways you can identify because of prophecy where the lost tribes are, the covenant people of Israel, is where you've seen tremendous crimes against humanity. And this is only because of the prophecies like in Deuteronomy where Moses clearly explains, hey, if you keep God's laws, you worship him, you're going to be blessed beyond all people. If you worship idols and fall away from him, you're going to be cursed beyond all people and you're going to be hated, you're going to be scattered, you're going to be smitten. 
we, we know this story to the Jews. I mean, we've seen it through time. We've seen it even in our generation, you know, with the Holocaust. Um, we're understanding now that it happened to the people in the Central Americas who were descendants of, gosh, you know, Nephi's people and others. Uh, they suffered tremendous genocide in the hands of the Spaniards. We'll leave it at that. But millions and millions of people killed this in the name of gold who were descendants. So another crime against humanity. But the one that we have not even really considered in our day is what happened in not just America, but throughout Europe in the 16, 17, 1800s. You had a tremendous slave trade. You had people who were of the Gentile cultures going into Africa and wiping out people and then taking the ones they wanted for slaves. Once again, it's a crime against humanity. And even slaves who are brought here, what they're realizing now in the day may have been part of these lost tribes of Africa. And, and it's just another example of the, of the genocide against humanity. But it's in the way it's done also. It's fulfilling the prophecy about how he said God said the Israelites would be scattered from the ends of the earth, north, south, east, west, wherever they were going to go. But God was going to call them back someday. And even bringing slaves here to America may have been a fulfillment of his prophecy from the beginning. That's an interesting concept. And though people may want to, you know, point about how bad America is, you know, and the slaves and the history in just a very short number of years, America is a country that put an end to slavery. Yes. You know, they came over here and, and the people rose up and said, this isn't right. And it's, it's a very young country that in just, you know, just a handful of years decided that no, slavery is not right. And we're going to put an end to this. And so that's how, that's another way to look at it. You know, these people were enslaved in other countries, came here and, and ended up, you know, the Gentiles ended up putting an end to that. So that's, that's interesting when you tie in possible prophecy to that. You know, you think of the Israelites and being slaves to the Egyptians and all of that. But uh, once again, delivered, uh, delivered. Well, that's good. Thank you for sharing that. That's exciting stuff. This the world is truly Corey becoming a smaller place with with technology and DNA testing and all of these things being used, you know, to fulfill prophecy. And you see, the Lord, we're just finding out more and more information, and it can be used for good. It's certainly used for bad, we know. But how many things look at we we can find out now? just based on this technology that never would have happened, you know, 30 years ago. Right. It's just uh, knowledge is becoming abundant. So things are speeding up and that's exciting, exciting stuff. Yesterday, brother, I had, I had a great day. I had an opportunity to renew a friendship with a brother that I used to go to church with a number of years ago. And we haven't, we haven't really had a time to sit down and talk for years. And so we drove about an hour away to uh, one of the branches that, of the church and uh, spent the day with him and his family. And I just wanted to share a little bit. It, it, um, it brings joy to my heart, Corey, when I find someone who, um, through reading the Word of God, he's come to a lot of the conclusions and a lot of the things that we've talked about on here, just, you know, through re not just, but by reading the Word of God, and he opened up his scriptures and showed me all of these references that he'd been taking notes on over the years that that talked about Jesus being in us and, um, you know, that you're either in or you're out. There is none of this, 
silliness about being saved and yet separated from God for eternity, you know. Um, and we talked about that, and it was it was very uplifting. And last night he sent me um, he sent me some scriptures. I, I told him I said, you know, you have you have instilled in me a desire to go back and now read the Bible, the New Testament, and see it for what it is, and not through my traditional lens, you know, of works and trying to to do all of these things, but to uh, see it for what it is. So he sent me several scriptures on Jesus Christ being in us and being born again. And that is a mystery that just we just don't talk a lot about in the restoration. So I thought today it would be kind of neat, Corey, just to go through these scriptures. There's just a handful and read them. And you and I just discuss because we haven't talked about this. What are we looking at? Because and I want to. I want to be. This is a positive thing, I think, to recognize these things. But you know, we we want to spend a lot of time debating. You know, a lot of um, I don't know what the word is. Procedural regulations. You know, because of where the church is at, we we decide. You know, well, who who are we going to serve sacrament to, and who has authority in these things? And I understand that those. I do understand that those are important to a point because of where we're at in the church. But more important than that, I think, first of all, is do we have a body of believers that have been born again? Yes. Because if we don't have a body of believers that truly have Christ living within them and them being in Christ and being born again, it doesn't matter who we're serving sacrament to or or even taking the sacrament because we're missing the most important part and it's not going to save us. But being born of the Spirit is going to save us. So I would think that it would be more important to to establish that and spend time on looking at that than the other stuff that we continually go to. You know, who has authority and, and what's... We can do that all day long, but but yet we continue to suffer and the sheep continue to, to not be fed, I believe, the things that they need to nourish them. Um, so anyway... That's my, that's my thought on it. We were going to talk today about what is the gospel, and I think uh, we'll get to that. Um, but let's, if we can, Corey, you know, there's a scripture in the Book of Mormon, and you can probably find it. I did a really bad job of copying and pasting it into my notes um, about the Gentiles shall establish the truth of the first. I don't have the reference, and I and I cut it off too early. I should have had a couple scriptures back, but it talks about the record, the Book of Mormon when it comes forth, will establish the truth of the first records, which we take to mean, you know, in part the Bible. I'm on the scripture, if Perfect. you want it. <laughs> Why don't you, what's the reference? In the RLDS version, it's First Nephi chapter 3, verse 192. If this is the one you're looking for, it says the angel spoke. Now, context, this yeah. is Nephi's vision where he's being shown this whole tree of life vision. And then also... After that, he's shown the prophecy of his future, of his people, and how everyone comes back to the Lord. But that's the that's where it comes from. And it says, the angel said, these last records which thou hast seen among the Gentiles shall establish the truth of the first, which are of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, and shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them. Okay, so these last records among the Gentiles, the book of, which we would say would be the Book of Mormon coming forth. Mm-hmm will establish the truth of the first records that they had, which which the 12 apostles, that would be the, the Bible or the, you know, the New Testament, I guess, 
could be the Old Testament, but it would establish the truth of the first and because of the plain and precious things that were removed. So I would like to look at some of these scriptures that we would say in the first records and see if the Book of Mormon helps establish truth of any of these things or if they sound familiar and if we have any additional um, understanding that may come through the Book of Mormon. But but let's just... Uh, I got I got a handful of scriptures last night, and I said, I'm going to read those tomorrow. Let's go through these, Corey, and see what the New Testament says and see if, have we ever heard this before? Have yeah. we have we had classes on this? Have we even talked about what this means in our everyday life? And let's, let's just read what the Word says and, and discuss it. So That sounds good. Hey, let me give you the LDS. This is 1 Nephi chapter 13, verse 40, if you want that same Book of Mormon reference about the records in the first being established. So, yeah, go for it, Mike. All right, just a second. All right, so this is Colossians 1, towards the end, uh, verses 26-ish. Let's see where we want to start. Um, let's see. So he says, and um, let's go back to um, verse 23, Colossians 1, 23. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even, and here we are, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So he says the Gentiles even, there's a mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, that is, we're looking back and we know all of the debates and all of the, (laughs) the millions of, books being written, but imagine these people being hearing this Christ in us. What does that mean? Christ in us, the hope of glory. Mm. It says that this is a mystery that's been hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints. A mystery hid from ages, from generations, being made manifest, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What in the world does Mm. that mean? That's that's pretty, um, I don't know. I don't have any thoughts. I want to read some more scriptures, but Christ in you. So we have this thought of, well, so there's this supernatural spirit that can come and invade my body and live in me. Nevertheless, you know, not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's um, that's something that we, we've probably heard, but have we dwelt on that? Have we thought about that? Have we looked at our life and say, Christ is definitely living in me and I have a hope hope of glory. Mm. I don't know. Mm. Not enough. I can tell you that not enough. There's, there's too many other things that we may bog our mind down with. 
You know what's interesting uh, when you compare the Book of Mormon and the New Testament, in in the writings of Nephi, starting there, uh, even though he's not the first to testify of Jesus, I mean, you, you go back to the Jaredites and they understood. Um, you find that from the beginning, the the prophets had this testimony of Jesus, and this isn't something that the Book of Mormon only says. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus after his death and resurrection, and the apostles didn't. Well, we're going to get to that. Oh, oh, really? I was just going to say, when they didn't recognize who he was, um, he explains how all the prophets have been talking about him. And so in this Colossian scripture, what's interesting is that it sounds like it's this new idea where people didn't hear that message, and now they're all of a sudden realizing it was all about Jesus Christ and being him being part of you and you being part of him from the beginning, right? Yeah, maybe not that. But I was thinking of Paul on the road. But oh no, no, yeah. So no, I'm just saying that. Yeah, he's even explaining to his disciples from the beginning how everything you know, on the road to Emmaus, and they're saying, "Hey, didn't our hearts burn within us?" It's like they're finally getting this understanding that had been this mystery to them uh, for so long in the in Israel, where it's like they didn't understand the connection. Yet, I would say if there's a huge difference between the people in America with the Nephite heritage versus in Israel is that the people in America had a better understanding that all this was going to point towards Jesus. And it's like, so what you shared in Colossians seems to be this idea that, hey, if you haven't heard, if you haven't understood by now, this whole point is Jesus, his spirit dwelling in you. We're going to turn to Galatians and there's going to be several scriptures in Galatians. And the first one's in the first chapter. And this is Paul talking. So Um, It says, verse 15, It pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were the apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again unto Damascus, And after three years, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. And now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. He was taught this, and it was Christ in him that allowed him to preach the gospel. Christ in me. So let's go to... uh, Galatians 2.20, next chapter, see what that says. I am crucified with Christ, and here's the popular, popular scripture, right? Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And we've gone over that, Corey, in in previous podcasts, and you have really helped me to understand that. We're not talking about the law of doing anything good, but the law of Moses. So if law of Moses could, could have caused them to be righteous, then Christ didn't need to die. But he says... I have died, yet I live, but not I, but Christ liveth in me. So he was crucified with Christ, and he was basically born again, living, but it was Christ living in him. Now, this is what we need to base our whole doctrine on, Corey, the whole gospel, not not the 
authority of the priesthood in 1830. And that's not, I'm not being negative or critical or saying that's not important, but that's not the most important thing because priesthood authority does absolutely no good if you haven't been crucified with Christ and have him living in you. It's just not going to save you. It's, it's to, it's to help this to happen. But this message of being crucified with Christ and not, not you living, but Christ living in you, I don't understand that enough. I don't. I don't because that's something that's preached in other churches, but not ours, not enough. Mm-hmm. And maybe, and not that it's never been, but, but this is what we need to be teaching and focusing on, and it's the most important thing. There is nothing else because at, at the last day, when you stand before the Father to be judged, you're either covered by the blood of Christ and presented clean, or you're filthy and you can't be in the kingdom. Yes. Well, the Book of Mormon talks about this. This is the end of all mankind, right? To either, you know, the scriptures. <laughs> you're like a Levitus or, or a concordance, <laughs> but you know the scripture that the, the final state of all mankind. Um, yeah, to, I know you'll find it to but, dwell. It's it's in First Nephi four. He it's his explanation of this whole vision. He says the first uh, or, or, or the ultimate final state of mankind is either. To dwell in the kingdom of God or to be cast out? That's dwell in the kingdom. And so what what allows us to do that is we're either clean or we're filthy. Yeah. And that's that's by the blood of Christ, by him living in us. He's mm-hmm. either covered us or he, or he hasn't. So let's this is every chapter in Galatians. Uh, we've got a couple more. So now we're on to chapter 3 in verse. I just want to go back and read this whole book uh, anew and try to keep my mind open and see what is this telling me about Jesus. But uh, chapter three twenty seven. Let's see. We're going to back up a little bit. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster until Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, justified by faith. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Yeah. So there was always this chosen people, right? Abraham's seed, the Jew, he said, no, don't matter, male, female, Greek, Gentile, Jew, so here's a different, so we, we were talking about, you know, visually Christ being in you. Now we're talking about Christ being over you. Um, what's it say? You have put on Christ. Mm. I mean, can you imagine just putting on this this cloak or this, you have put on Christ. Like he's covering you. He's surrounding you. To me, that means like when the father looks at you, he doesn't see your filthy rags. He sees his son, Jesus, that died. Mm. And so... You have place in the kingdom because you're you have Jesus on you. You know, we talked about uh, just briefly. I think about Jesus saying, "Eat my flesh, drink my blood." You're talking about taking Jesus in you, right? right. And we're talking about this mystery of Christ living in you. It's all it's all symbolic, but it's also more real than we. Sometimes we say, "Well, it's just symbolic." No, that's like he's trying to tell you how intimate. You have to be connected to him. Exactly. You now, know, you know, I was going to add this idea. It's, it's like, you know, all these things seem symbolic, and it's like we can say, well, Christ needs to be in us. And it's like, yeah, you know, from the from the words, 
right. It sounds good. But how does that translate into to meaning and action and what, what makes that happen? What's the catalyst for that to happen? And I, it's interesting that you're bringing this up, Mike, because I know you and I really didn't even discuss this beforehand, but just in the last week, um, my eyes have been open to scriptures that are in the Book of Mormon that, like so many, you read them a hundred times, and then all of a sudden you see it a different way, and it says something brand new, and it's it brings truth and meaning and, and depth. Uh, the, what you just mentioned about the communion, if I can just interject this, but I don't want you to lose your train of thought, was it really helps in the Book of Mormon where in the day when Jesus is among the Nephites, it's after the destruction, and he's come down, and, and he— they have communion, and, and it's recorded twice, although that's not the only times it happened. But we have a time when Jesus goes off by himself and he prays. And a couple of times they said the things he prayed were so marvelous we can't even write them down. We can't even speak the words he said. But sometimes they could bear witness that it was beyond what, he, what, what their understanding was. But there were two times in this interaction with Jesus and the Nephites, and it's in the ninth chapter of Third Nephi, uh, one of them's at verse 23, and one of them's at verse 30. And this just jumped out at me, where he, in the prayers that they could hear and understand and also record, it's written this. He says, the Lord Jesus was praying for the people. He says, I pray for all the people here. I pray for those that will believe on their words, and I pray that they may believe in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that and here's the punchline, that we may be one. He says that in 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 23, that we may be one. And then he says it again. There's another prayer. He goes off again another time. And he says, Father, I pray not for the world, but I pray for those who you've given me out of the world because of their faith. And then he says that they may be purified in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one that I may be glorified in them. So in verse 23 and in verse 30, he repeats this phrase both times, that we may be one. And I, and then when I came across that, I, I prayed, Lord, I said, okay, that we might be one. So, so how do we do that? How do we do that? And, and what is amazing to me is that the, the process, I think, is laid right out in the Book of Mormon. And I don't want to necessarily get into that yet, but I, I just want to share that these scriptures that you're talking about from the New Testament seem to talk about the same need that the point is, hey, we have to be one with Christ and that's the important goal. And then in the Book of Mormon, we get this uh, beautiful illustration of Jesus praying that we can be one. And then there's a there's an important revelation, I would say is, is the right word, that comes through the rest of this dialogue with him and the people. Well, I think I think we should go into it because like it says that this will establish the truth of the first. Okay. Paul doesn't give Paul. Paul is setting up a standard, or he's giving us a snapshot of like he just puts his blurb out there, like this great mystery is revealed, Christ in you. But there's no, there's no dialogue. There's no, or, there's or no process. How, right, 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 and, right. And, and probably there, there maybe there was, but that's been removed, or there's been other writings that talk about it. So if the Book of Mormon fills in this mystery, then I think we should. We should go over it. So what do you what do you got? <laughs> well, Book of Mormon to the rescue once again, right? Um, okay, so this is something that um, it's it's one of these I don't know it's one of these things where it's like he's been telling us since the beginning this stuff and and as you started this off saying you know 
being one with Christ is more important than anything. Um, we, we tend to overlook these things because we focus more in, like you said, well, authority of priesthood or authority of this and that and the other. And we, we can talk about that. But what <clears throat> is uh, pretty interesting here is, so getting back to this uh, whole dialogue with Jesus, he says that we may be one. And then they, they serve communion. Backing up a little bit, he talked about the mercy and the justice, and this comes out often. Um, when they first were served communion, uh, it, it comes off out often, I guess I should say, because these types and shadows or this idea of mercy and justice are throughout Scripture. Um, when, <clears throat> when the disciples go get bread and wine, what happens is that they, they serve the bread, and, and it says, and they ate and they were filled. And the disciples first, then the multitude was ate and filled, ate and they were filled. They're, without knowing it, that may be why sometimes in our traditions, our protocol of serving communion is that the priesthood are served up front first and then the body and the congregation. That's how Jesus did it too. He served the priesthood first and, and, then, he served, and then they served everyone else. Same with the wine. But when they served the wine, it says they, they drank and they were filled. That's the first time they have communion, when the disciples brought it. They were filled physically. But when they served it, it says they served one cup, one cup. Now, in the early days of the church, I mean, even in our church and other churches, sometimes there was one cup by which people partook communion. And now in our day, people are thinking, hey, you know, health-wise and stuff, we, we don't want to do that. You know, you don't want to drink out of the same cup with someone else. But there was an important spiritual reason for this is because the cups represent the same idea of mercy and justice. And how is that? Well, and this is where the Book of Mormon comes in again. This cup that we drink from at a sacrament service represents the cup of salvation. There is only one salvation. There is returning to God's presence. That is the one cup. The, the problem is that there is another cup, and this cup is the cup of God's wrath or justice. Now, I'll, I'll share a couple scriptures here from the Book of Mormon that point this out. Um, when Isaiah writes, he talks to the Jews and says, hey, you have drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling. All right. Now, in other words, he's, it's, a, it's a very metaphorical way of saying you have partaken in God's wrath, right? The dregs are, you know, the bottom of the cup. If, the, if you had grape juice, for instance, and it settles out, you know, the, the kind of stuff that didn't that passed through the filter, the dregs, people didn't want to drink that, right? But he's saying, no, you, you, only, you not only got the dregs, you, you got a bad cup too. But this idea is uh, expanded on in the Book of Mormon. Alma talks about this in chapter 19, where he's talking about this whole aspect of salvation. He says, the people who are cast out, it says, are consigned to partake of the fruits of their labors or their works, which have been evil, and they drink the dregs of a bitter cup. So this cup, Jesus says, um, now, oh, let me give you one more. King Benjamin talks about this, and, and it's beautiful. In first chapter of Mosiah and the third chapter again, he says, therefore, those people who do not come to Christ, in Mosiah chapter 1, verse 128, he says, they have drunk out of the cup of the wrath of God which justice could no more deny them than it could deny that Adam should fall for partaking of the forbidden fruit. Mercy will have no claim on them forever. 
And, and he says something similar again, uh, comparing the cup to the wrath of God in the third chapter. The reason I'm sharing this is because when we participate in communion, we're symbolically saying, no, Lord, we want to participate in your salvation. We want to drink from the cup of salvation, right? We don't want to drink from the cup of, of justice or being cast out. And so to do that, to do that, I mean, we're symbolically saying, no, Lord, we want to drink of the cup that you're giving us. He gives us five clues how to do that. And it's interesting because we have been reciting these things forever, and we don't even realize what the five clues are to be one with Jesus. This is bringing it back now to this idea of how do we become one with Jesus? Well, the cup that we're drinking from represents, I want to be one with you. So then what? where does he tell us how to be one with him? It's exactly given in the communion prayers, in the communion prayers that we offer every single time. It's like our pledge of allegiance, if you will, to this, to God. But we're also giving the formula, if you will, to use that word, of how to be one with God. And so what do I mean by that? Um, let's just let's just read the communion prayer. Uh, this, this starts in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and this is interesting because the language here, it says, hey, we thought it was good that you had the exact words that Jesus spoke when we had communion together. You know, it's like added in Moroni's writings, but it comes back from the time 400 years earlier when Jesus was there. And so the communion prayer, O God, the eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they, and here's clue number one, eat in remembrance of the body of thy son. What does that mean, to eat in remembrance of the body of thy son? What does it mean to you, I mean, Mike, if, if you do something in remembrance? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anything deeper than that other than what we've talked about, that you, you're remembering there's only one cup. It's either, it's either Christ or it's the cup of, like you said, the cup of the wrath of God. Exactly, you know? and, and, and I love how you said that because there, it isn't any deeper than that. It's like, okay, I'm going to eat in remembrance of the body of thy son. Now, remember, all this with the communion also coupled this idea that Jesus said, hey, do this among those who have repented and are, are baptized. Why would we do it among anyone else who hasn't repented or baptized? Because they haven't, they haven't taken that step yet. It's mocking God to say, hey, well, just serve communion to anyone who's never repented, never been baptized, because you haven't taken that step to say, I want, because my heart's changed, to participate in your salvation, Lord. This is what we're remembering when we do it. So the first thing is, hey, we got to remember. And, and then the second part says, and witness unto thee that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy son. So when we serve communion and partake in communion, there's a misnomer, there's a misunderstanding in our culture. And, and, and it's worth remembering reminding everyone that the reason we partake of communion is to remember what he did. The, the misunderstanding is that we're taking it because we have to do it to be forgiven of our sin. There's a, there's a tying back to the Old Testament days when the sacrifice was offered annually, the people did that because they were commanded, you're doing this because this is going to take your sin. It's going to absolve your sin and you're going to do it every year. But it was only as a reflection of what Jesus would do once for everybody. When, when we take communion again, it's not like it was in the Old Testament where they had to do it and they couldn't be, or they couldn't be forgiven. We're forgiven anytime we repent. 
But the communion now is to remember what he said and so he, or we, what he did so that when we are willing to take upon us his name, it's because we've made that covenant. So we remember his sacrifice, number one. We're willing to take upon his name. That means, hey, I'm going to stand for you, Jesus. I'm going to stand for right things in the, in the fallen world. I'm going to try to follow and obey. This is what we're witnessing when we take the communion. We're saying, Lord, I want to be on your team. I want to continue. Even though I get knocked down, I'm going to get back up. I, I'm going to bear your name to the world. So, so if we want to be one with God, we have to remember his sacrifice first. We have to be willing to take upon us his name second. Third, that we'll always remember him. You know, we get this lots of ways in scriptures that we'll, you know, be in prayer continually and, and have this aspect where our hearts are turned towards him, even if we're not praying vocally. That's to always remember him, right? And then he says, number four, which he has, uh, and kept his commandments. And so if we keep the commandments, if we remember him, if we're willing to bear his name, if we're willing to remember this sacrifice, the fifth part is he says this, if you do those things, you'll always have my spirit to be with you. And so to be one with God, he's telling us, okay, you make your covenant, you remember, you take my name, you, you bear witness of me, you keep my commandments, you do these things. That's how you become one, right? And so coming back in our day, it's like, you know, we get into the nitty gritty of, you know, things like oh, authority and this and that and the other. And it's like, there's a lot of scriptural examples where it's like, it wasn't so much about the authority of the person doing it. I mean, look at Alma. How did he get authority when he had been part of King Noah's wicked court, right? And then he's baptizing people in the wilderness. Compare that to other people who hadn't been doing that. But the point is, the real point was the people's hearts changed. And God saw their heart change, and he counted that as good. You know, So, so when we're serving communion, we're serving it to the people who said, hey, my heart's changed. I've taken on the name of Christ. I'm witnessing. I'm, I'm a changed person in Christ because I have the Holy Ghost present in me. And he's, that's what he says. Then you'll always have my spirit to be with him. We don't seem to ask those questions of people. We we don't say, well, you know, is your I don't even know how we do it. Have you, you know, have you witnessed this change of heart in your life? Is God's spirit with you, right? Have you made that covenant? Because that's what God seems to honor in, in our day, and it's it's not everywhere, but it's in certain circles of the church. They get hung up on other issues, thinking, well, it, it you can't your baptism can't be uh, valid if you weren't baptized by me or us or something like that, you know. And, and these are the things that I think, to me, are taken away from the deeper meaning of, of these things that you're pointing out. But anyhow, I just wanted to say that about hey, the, there's a there's a formula given, if you will, in the even the communion prayers themselves of how to be one with God and what He's looking for in our response. I don't know. It muddies the waters more for me, to be honest, because uh, now we are back to it is important. I mean, if it's a, if it's baptized, then you do have to look at who well, who was baptized by who. How, how do you think? Well, because you said you know, the first step is you can't serve it to people that aren't baptized because they have had to have made that covenant. But we don't, you know, the baptism um, is important by who did it. We we don't we don't accept you know someone from the Catholic Church or Lutheran Church or or even someone that was baptized when they were eight years old in uh, another denomination. And so it does kind of get muddy then, but, um, I don't know. It's, 
to me, that's still, it seems like picking yourself up by the bootstraps. I mean, I can remember Christ. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to. Well, so here, let me, let me bring up something else. And, and here, all I want to say is this, is that God is ultimately looking at the heart and it's, it's the harder thing for us to judge. It's a lot easier for people to say, well, it's easier for me to determine if I feel like the person who baptized you right. have authority or not. And that's, that's the point I'm making is that in all of this, yeah, the Book of Mormon says you need to be baptized by someone with authority, but the, the Book of Mormon also talks about the people who participate in communion need to have, have this change of heart. That's, that's the point I'm making. And, and if we want to be one with Christ, he says, these are the steps to be one with him. But I want to throw something out, and it's, it's, it might sound a little unrelated, but, but it kind of is. There's, there's times in Scripture when it's like, all right, we want everything to fit, but we don't always have uh, the answers we need. Like, for instance, the Book of Mormon talks about authority, but it doesn't completely define what that means. I know in our day, it's it's a lot easier to say, well, hey, if it's someone in our congregation, then we know they have authority, right? I'll just leave it at that. But we're, you know, or you could say, well, anyone who was ordained under, uh, since Joseph Smith, you know, maybe they have authority. Um, where, where the waters get muddy is things like when the apostles come up to Jesus and they say, hey, we saw this guy casting out devils and he he wasn't part of our group. How How is that done? And Jesus' response is what? Hey, if he's not against us, he's for us. Well, where does that leave it, right? It doesn't seem to well, answer this question, I, right? I wouldn't read anything more into it than that. Well, that I'm just bringing it up, and I know it's kind of— doesn't mean you can have communion or whatever, but, but it's just who, like, don't worry about that right now. Well, or, you know, or there could be a lot to the story that we just don't understand. It's right. like we, we want it to fit into concise packages that we can answer, but the problem is— have we really asked this question, Lord, so what exactly does authority mean? We, we might think we have the answer, but there's a lot of times in scriptures where, um, I mean, so, so let me go back to that for a second. What if this guy, and I'm just going to start a rumor here that's not founded by anything other than I just want to be an instigator here. What if that guy who was casting out the devils in Jerusalem had actually been a Nephite who built a boat and went back over to Jerusalem just because he wants to see Jesus in person because he knows of him. And then he was actually someone who had already made a covenant with God and the disciples didn't know him, right? I mean, I'm not saying that happened, but what if it was something like that, right? What if this guy no fully knew Christ, just the disciples didn't know him? It could have been that as well, right? We, we don't have any idea. We, we don't really know because the Bible doesn't give us any other story. And I'm not saying that my little rumor is even true. I'm just saying, what if? Um, what if that he did have full authority and it was just the disciples' error? We don't know. But so here's, here's what I would suggest is like authority becomes the thing that we want to be able to define. But I don't know. It comes down to our solution sometimes, and this is where people are getting a little bit hung up. I think um, when when we when we decide the the issue is more about authority and less about the change of heart, I think that's where we're missing the point. If someone, for instance, uh, and I know it's kind of uncomfortable, I, but I, I just want to say, well, the, in the days of uh, the Jews, for instance, practicing circumcision, this is still an issue today in the Orthodox Jews. There's a commandment that you have to circumcise a baby on the eighth day. All right, that's commandment. So a, a male child, he's circumcised on the eighth day. Yeah, we've talked about this. So the rabbis got in the in the bind. Yeah, I don't know. Did we, we talked about yeah. it on the podcast? So the rabbis get in a bind because they are not supposed to lift anything on the Sabbath. And if that circumcision, the eighth day, is on the Sabbath, what do they do? They keep God's 
law of circumcision, but they break God's law of lifting on the Sabbath. Now that was kind of an oral tradition. But the, the point is they'd have this conflict, all right? They'd have this conflict. How do we keep this one without breaking the other? So I wonder, and this is just me, is that what is what is God's view of this? You have this idea that someone's heart has changed and they've, they've been baptized versus someone who's uh, saying, well, it's got to be by authority, and, and which, which one outweighs the other? Um, we want them both to fit. But my point is this. In Alma's day, he had people who had been transgressing the church. This was uh, p- people before his son had been converted and all this. And, and he says, Lord, what do I do with the transgressors? And God responds after he pours out his heart in prayer for a long time. And he says, it's good that you asked about this. I, here's how to handle it. Where, where I'm just wondering, Mike, and this is just my honest question, is that have we really, really got the right answer on what authority means in, in our day? Because where it's taken us in the restoration groups, I'll, I'll say this, is that there are people who used to all worship together who've divided against each other who say, well, one guy doesn't have authority because he believes this aspect of doctrine that I don't believe anymore. And so therefore... I don't reject. I don't accept that authority. Now, I, I don't want to take this to a larger conversation to everything and everyone yeah, in the world. <laughs> yeah, but but no, but I, but this is this is the the question I got to ask is that is it right for people to say my and, and this is where it's like the conflict is it right for people to say okay, well, I don't accept someone's baptism because I don't accept the person who baptized them if the person who was being baptized had fully wanted to come to Christ and, and sought that, you know, because of the change of heart and had God's spirit in them. I mean, that's the, that's the conflict I see. Right. I mean, and so it's like, we want all this to fall into nice, neat packages. And I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like, have we really, has God told us what that authority means? Because we've wanted it to mean people like us, right. People who think exactly like we do. And it's like, I don't know. I, where is the, what what's the what's the definition the working definition of authority as how it's applied to the to the restoration churches i think it's created a, a lot of muddiness well that's exactly my point and where i where i i think where we started today was like i don't want to talk about this because i don't think we have an answer mm-hmm. and to me it's wisdom i mean you know what it's more important when you think about serving sacrament on sunday how many of our members have Christ in them? How many of our members exactly. know Christ or, or or have this mystery of Christ living in them and have become new creatures? Well, I would say probably almost none based on the fruits of the Spirit in the church. I just, I don't think we're there. I don't think as a body, we have this great love relationship with Jesus. Now I'm saying as a body, I don't know individual hearts, but as a body of people looking at the lack of the fruit of the Spirit within the body, within the ministry, that's where we're at. And so I choose not to debate the authority thing until we figure out and focus on this mystery of, of Christ in us. And, and that's the communion is, is just a, it's a big a mystery to me as the, the question of who has priesthood authority. And so I don't find wisdom in, in debating that. Um, you know, I would say, you know what, if you can't figure it out, then suspend communion services until we figure out who Jesus is in our relationship with him because we're just we're just do going through the motions anyway you know we can read the prayers over and over 
and see the words in them. But if there's nothing going on in our heart and they're just words, then it's we're missing something about this mystery of Christ in us. And we have to figure that out. We have to have that be a part of our, our DNA, man. Exactly. Exactly. And that's no, I'm, I am a hundred percent with what you're saying because that is the point. That's the point of all this is that, Hey, if we're taking Christ's name on us, this is, this is how we become one with him. This is how we've taken this mystery upon ourselves. And if we're not asking those questions, it's like, you know, it doesn't really matter authority and all these other things, but it's, it's sad that that's what the conversations have come down to. And instead, instead of the things that you're bringing up today, you know, this mystery of God within us. Yeah. I mean, even you and I won't, I mean, we can go round and round and not find a solution. Then when you get a body of priesthood um, that don't find a solution and just have endless debates over it, at some point you have to say, can we shift our focus to something that's more productive? Can Mm -hmm. we shift our focus to, you know, to the one eternal truth from the beginning? And that's that, you know, salvation was, was planned from the beginning of the world, right? That God will come down and dwell in flesh and die for us and that, his blood will cover us and atone for our sins and that we have to have him in us and we have to be not only in us, but he has to cover us. And that's a great mystery and one that we shouldn't take our focus off of until we are having born again experiences in the church, until people are being born of the spirit. And, you know, we, we taught when we have to wrap up, we've gone way over farther than I wanted to go. Cause I want to try to keep these a little shorter, but I, Maybe we can talk next time about that, that speaking with the tongue of angels and, okay. the, and the, um, the criteria, and it's a lot of these things are standards, and I like to get the standard is, does great to paint a picture for us of where we should be, but it does nothing for us in helping us get there other than making us feel bad. And so we have to look at the standards in the scriptures, but, but also find the processes, the how-to and we, maybe we can look at that in the next one on the standard of what a member of Christ, because the, the Book of Mormon does fill that in very specifically. Like these are the type of things you should be doing as just as a member, not not as ministry. I shouldn't say just. As a member, these are your rights and these are your, your callings. Um, so maybe we can get into that. Um, I know we talked this week, Corey, about, uh, one of those scriptures just in texting back and forth that talks about that. But uh, we got a couple other scriptures to read in the Bible. Maybe we can do next time just to get our, our focus back on Christ in us, this mystery, and and uh, talk about, you know, like we said, how do we get that? You know, what does that mean to us? And I, I don't think we're... <laughs> I don't expect us to figure that out. Well, on, on exactly. Air, but. but you know, here's the other thing too. And even though it's like, you know, we're not sitting here today saying, Hey, we got every answer. I think we're probably speaking to the questions that some people are even afraid to ask. And, and maybe some of the answers aren't always obvious, but right. let's, let's focus on what is obvious is that we need to have Christ in us. And that probably it's better to err on that side than. And than that's where I feel like, the evangelicals ask the right questions or, and they think they have the right answers. It's maybe sometimes they do, but I just, but there's a breakdown there as well. And so, um, boy, I tell you, well, we'll leave, we'll leave some of this for the next one then. And we'll uh, focus back on, like you said, what, uh, what can we do to uh, have Christ in us? All right. Um, my mind's still spinning. So <laughs> I hope I can remember where my mind was at. All right. Well, Until next time, we are just walking each other home. All right. God bless.